you know, beyond beyond your professional designation of the work you do, I mean, who are you? Like, what makes you you? What makes you tick? If you had to kind of, like, put it on a page, like, the things that are really important about me in my life, like, what would that be? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, you know, one of the things I, I like to teach people is that we need to embrace our weird. And embracing our weird phrase came out of my own self-acknowledgement for that, that, that I finally kind of came into an understanding of who I really was and that I needed to. I loved all of those unique parts about me, even though sometimes they're off-putting to others. So the things that are, are kind of make up me um, are very random. Uh, I am a moved my entire life, which is, I think, what leads into the work I do, um, why I'm so passionate about it, but I've moved most of my childhood. I've lived in 13 states, about 18 or 19 different cities at this point. I'm starting to lose track. Most of that was in my childhood. Um, I have a deep love for my family. Um, I have two grown sons that are, like, you know, amazing that they even uh, came came out of me and our and our life and all of my, my randomness. Um, but they're awesome, and I'm very passionate about uh, people. I love understanding people, why they tick, and helping them kind of just explore who they really are. Um, and one of my favorite moments is when people, when I'm just having conversations and they have their own aha moment, uh, just by sharing, I think, just sharing a story about all the things that have gone on in my life and things I've overcome or survived or just realized about the world. Um, I'm also super passionate about, I love great food, I love great wine, um, I love travel, I love hanging out with my friends and just talking, and um, science fiction, a huge science fiction person. Um, so uh, anything that can spark and feed my curiosity and help me in my constant state of learning is really what I'm all about. So, um, But at the end of the day, it boils down to just a deep passion for humanity. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. That is awesome. And, and are you in uh, – remind me where you're located. Is it Atlanta or am I wrong? I am in Atlanta, Georgia. That is right. Great, great. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, Atlanta is an incredible city. Uh, I have a lot of family there. My whole dad's side of the family kind of grew up there and uh, seen it go through all the changes. And, and um, are, what part of the city are you in? Are you in kind of like the – I'm on the north side, um, like – it's, I'm literally, as people say around here, I'm OTP. I'm outside the perimeter. <laughs> mm-hmm. yep. uh, I'm, out, I'm OTP by about a mile, but, um, but I've been here for about a year, and I, you know, the people, um, I had, I, one thing I would say to people when they, they try to envision Atlanta, um, if you were much like myself for my entire life, I kind of viewed Atlanta as the only thing we knew about Atlanta was traffic, and that's colored our perspective, right, which is true. Um, but it kind of colors our perspective of what we would assume the place is like. And so it was never really somewhere on my list I wanted to be. Um, and as it turns out, it's exactly where I needed to be. And the people are, I mean, they really do community well. They're really, really about community, about connection, and just just really, I mean, they're just awesome people. Like, I've, I think that's why I want to be here the most is just the people have made it amazing. Very welcoming yeah. city. Got a lot going on too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We were just watching the, um, <clears throat> the football game the other night, and we saw the stadium. That was just like talk about science fiction. That was like science reality. I was, I was like, right. Whoa. And uh, well, yeah, yeah. Okay. And one of the interesting things um, that people may not know is there are more movies and television shows being produced here um, in Atlanta and in the state of Georgia than even Hollywood now. 
Really? So, yeah, there's the, the film industry has just had an amazing boom in Atlanta and in, in North Georgia. Um, a lot of new studios have set up in places. Um, so if, if you're kind of into that sort of thing and, and a big, you know, show and movie buff, it's worth looking into everything that's being produced here right now. It's It's pretty incredible. Wow. You know, you're so right about that. I just realized that, too, because I, I can't even think of how many times in the last, you know, year I've been watching a movie or a show, and then at the very end of the show, you'll see that peach, and it says, like, mm-hmm. produced in Georgia. And I'm like, yeah, you know, and it makes sense. I mean, you know, why, I guess that it must be like a tax thing, or it must be just yes. like the space. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah have they a, have, they've, uh, the state has provided a lot of um, types of tax breaks and provisions to to bring the work here. Um, and then, of course, that's adding to things like tourism and whatever. So it's, it's definitely an, uh, been, been a pretty significant economic boom, my understanding. That's awesome. That is so cool. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I have many clients who are, you know, in that area, much family, a lot of family in that area. Um, and, you know, been, you know, been there many times. And it's just absolutely beautiful place. And it's funny because it doesn't even feel like, like when you think of Georgia and when you think of Atlanta, I mean that's just like world worlds apart. I mean Atlanta is like its own thing. It's like a melting pot. They call it the New York mm-hmm. of the South, you know. Very true. But um, well, that's great. And so so we've learned more, you know, just about you. And and I mean we've had a few Skype calls or at least one Skype call and interacted. Mm-hmm. But I mean I'm learning more about you just talking here. And so that's that's great. Um, but uh. So tell me about Leader 21 and tell me about Dragonfly. What got you into this? What got you started? Um, what's what's the passion there? Yeah, so, you know, um, the nutshell version I like to share with people to, to sum it up, because obviously we all have stories and histories and things that kind of really flow into our bigger whys, what we're doing. Um, but the short version is, you know, over the course of my career in corporate America, um, working for a big firm like Deloitte, which I loved. I mean, it was such a great experience. But I, what I discovered is I was really, I was too contained. And I'm not somebody that likes to be contained. Like, I'm great with structure and rules. Like, I'm that person. But I don't like having to fit a particular expectation or a particular mold or, or the box, if you will. That's a word we often use. And so I felt like in that environment, um, I, I could never really be the best version of myself. So my curiosity um, the questions, the way I put pictures together, which is actually one of my strengths, which is managing ambiguity. But in order to do that, I ask a lot of questions so that I can understand the full scope of what's going on and then provide the best level of service or deliverable back. Um, but the more I found that I did that, the more I um, was perceived as a threat often by um, my direct managers, though I was somehow gunning for their job. And it was really just me trying to put puzzle pieces together, right? So there was there was that element going into it. And when I decided to step out of that world and move into doing something on my own, um, which I was totally unprepared for, um, but, you know, moving into more of a consulting and coaching environment definitely was a better feel because I love the the advisory component is definitely my wheelhouse. So I'd been freelancing for a number of years and still finding that um, what I wanted to be able to do, what I felt I personally could offer back to the world, um, it, it still wasn't enough. And so what I discovered was open organizations. And the the principles of openness for me was definitely like coming home. It's like what I've been searching for. I'm like, this is how I've been wanting to live life. It's how I've been wanting to work. And why are we not been talking about it more? 
And so the more I dug into it and studied, I knew I wanted to um, step away from freelance consulting and coaching and, and working with other organizations that way and really step into forming a company that where we could just address this particular niche within culture and organizational change. So um, back in March, we launched Leader 21 on that premise. And um, I started working with my co-founder and partner on this idea of creating some instruments where we could measure change, how people respond to change, and then ultimately how we do that in an organization. Because there really aren't any metrics that help an organization track its implementation of change from a people side, um, or even if we wanted to talk about that measure of openness. Um, so a lot of organizations following those kind of principles, if you will, they might call it different things, but there's been no way to actively look at benchmarking it or how we're doing from a pro uh, progressing with it. So we started working on that together, um, and Dragonfly was born. And Dragonfly is a um, software as a service that's currently in development as a platform. We've designed the instruments already and have been beta testing those with a few organizations um, and, and just kind of looking at our results and making sure we're on the right track during the software development stage. Um, but ultimately what will happen is it's, it's, we're providing a place for people to come, um, both individuals and then organizations, that can look at how they respond to new information and how they respond to that during times of change. And then what we're able to do is, is um, while you may look at that and say, well, we've kind of assigned a profile, but what we're really doing is saying, here's how you process information. These are your strengths. These are how you're leveraged. Um, how you can be leveraged in a team environment or an organization environment. So that contribution value someone has in change, instead of looking at someone, for example, often we have somebody that pauses and, and sits back with information, or they need a lot of detail in processing change, or we might look at them as someone who's grieving their loss. We tend to associate a negative value to that, as so somehow they're slowing down the process of change or if they don't have a quick enough buy-in that there's, there's something wrong, right? So we automatically associate a negative to it instead of a positive contribution. But the reality is, is if we assign a positive value to that contribution and then identify where to put that person in the change cycle, everyone can be a positive change agent. They just have to know where they fit into the puzzle. So those people that tend to have more of the internal processing or the details or um, even the people that are more tied to legacy, right, they like stability, they don't want to necessarily let go of what's, what has been. Um, but if we know where to position that person, we actually can have sustainable change. Um, and not just a buy-in, but the contribution value kicks up, right? So everybody's engaged, everybody's a part of the process of the change in the initiative, um, and ultimately we're creating teams of highly adaptable, agile people, which is what we need right now in business. Um, so that's kind of how Dragonfly came about, and that's obviously the tip of the iceberg, but we're really, really excited about it. Um, both my partner and I have a, a unique shared history, um, not shared in the sense that we went through it at the same time, but we have this shared common history of similar situations, uh, growing up moving a lot, um, dealing with change, dealing with transformation our entire lives. And so we feel we bring a very unique perspective and passion as to, to why we're so focused on change and adaptability. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it's something that's, that's very near and dear to our hearts and, and helping people understand their value in it. Great, great, great. So you're a member of the Open Organization Ambassador team, contributed to open source, 
um, and you have a book, Generation Open, Building an Agile Organization, Culture, and Ecosystem in early 2018. I'm excited for that. Can you explain to listeners what the word or the term open organization means? Because that may be uh, – some people definitely understand that, but some people definitely don't. So can you go right. ahead and elaborate on that? Absolutely. Um, so it's one of those terms that when you hear it, often a lot of people are very off-put until it's been explained. So I'm glad you asked the question. Uh, I think our initial reaction to the word open um, and then combining it with an organization somehow implies as though there's little structure. It just means that there's a flat leadership system, no hierarchies. Um, when really open organizations look different, it can be different to each um, company itself. It is very structured. It requires a lot of intention. Um, not just to put the process in place to make it work, but intention in, in living it out every day. Um, open organization, often like this open org ambassadors team, is actually was spun out of um, the company Red Hat, who uh, designed Linux, you know, back in early yep. 90s, and they're, okay, open source technology, um, kind of one of the early pioneers in that space as well. And a couple of years ago, their CEO, Jim Whitehurst, wrote a book called The Open Organization. It was really uh, just kind of his commentary on what it was like moving from a closed organization environment like Delta into a more open environment where this company was running their culture and their organization off of um, the way open source technology is designed, this, this open, continuous learning environment. Everybody's very collaborative. Um, we you know, do a lot of feedback. Everybody has a say and a voice. And so um, this, this community has kind of spun off of that set of ideals where we said, okay, this all sounds really great, but what does it really look like? How does it work? How do we actually put feet on this thing? And so uh, while there is a set of governance and principles that go behind it, the, the core principles of openness are transparency, adaptability, collaboration, uh, inclusivity, and community. And um, I think any organization can, can infuse a measure of openness, even if they're not changing all of their governance models, for example. Um, but they can look at how can we infuse openness and how does it benefit us. Um, openness actually really unlocks the intelligence of people. It allows you to provide um, better solutions, more innovative solutions, and it allows you to ultimately have a competitive advantage um, in your market and in, in the work that you do. Um, it often gets confused when we say, well, transparency, what does that actually mean? Well, mm -hmm. why we want to be more transparent people, which, you know, we could, you know, lead off to be more authentic or talk about the vulnerability. Um, in an organization, transparency is it's better communication. It's having open discourse. It's removing the silos and the barriers from working with each other. It's knowledge sharing. It's having your your information accessible by by all of the appropriate people that need to have access to information instead of being like, you know, like we are in life sometimes. We get closed off and we keep everything really close to ourselves. But if we're doing that, we're, we're creating these little pockets of islands, right? Like we're not – there's no human connection when we're doing that. So, you know, this, this whole thing is about this human connection. And transparency is a big part of that. It's sharing what we have with others. Um, you know, the, the inclusivity part often is misconstrued as diversity. And inclusivity has to come before diversity, right? So it's really mm -hmm. getting back to this place of, you know, representing all points of view, um, allowing everybody at the table to have a voice, even if they're often an underheard or underrepresented voice, but it's about diversity of thought, right? Like getting in there and saying, 
you know, we all have different backgrounds, different cultures, different levels of education, but our experiences as humans, which often gets left out at the work table, but our experiences really help us have unique perspectives. Like we all filter through our own unique set of experiences. So being able to go around the table from an inclusion standpoint and say, okay, what do you think? And what do you think? And what do you think? And and being able to really create a, a, a very rich um, environment for that conversation uh, and a rich, I mean, it ultimately kind of goes back to creating places of trust and respect um, and, and where we have that uh, kind of environment to then create the best possible product. And what happens out of that is everybody's starting to feel valued, right? They're like, well, wait, maybe maybe my, my voice does matter in this. And and with that kind of comes a confidence and a deeper um, desire to engage and to, to plug in and provide something better to the community, if you will, uh, throughout an organization and, um, you know, how they serve their clients ultimately improves as well. Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, what you're, what you're saying is that, if I'm understanding you correctly, an open organization is not so much structural or technical as it is ideological. It's a way of approaching the interactions, the setup of relationships that you have within a company. Is that is that a, a decent summary, or am I missing? No, absolutely. And and while there can be a structural element to it, um, so that it does work right, it, you're absolutely correct. It is about creating a space for people to do their best work, predicated on these these sets of ideals, these five principles of how we engage and work together. Mm. Got you, got you. Yeah, so many, uh, so many companies struggle with what's called siloing, and I'm, I'm sure you've seen this mm-hmm. many, many times. How would you say your work impacts a company's ability to de-silo? So a company comes to you and says, listen, you know, we've only got 100 employees, but we've got like six, seven silos, six, seven departments that are off in their own world. They don't really interact with each other. Projects get you know convoluted mm-hmm. because there's no there's no sense of, of free communication here, and we are struggling. What would you say uh, your work does to help mitigate that? Yeah, so when you're taking an organization that's that's experiencing that, um, there are a couple of different ways you have to kind of back into it, right? I mean, you got to get everybody on the same page. There has to be a measure of buy-in, so you you do have to kind of start with explaining how this benefits everyone. Um, but there, there, this is happening a lot right now with uh, digital transformation. So companies are becoming very aware that um, when, as we're all implementing new technology now, and that's rapidly changing, or the level of service we're offering is constantly changing in, in this business environment. Our people have to be able to step up to that speed. So this is becoming more and more aware that um, having these silos is bad for business, if you will. So I think it's, uh, you know, creating places for people to connect, um, which we often recommend you want to use technology to do that. So there are a lot of tools out there that can be used. As an example of someone that somebody might be familiar with would be, implementing a collaborative tool, say like a Slack, where you can start talking uh, on a project basis. You can cross department, uh, have conversations. And and I think often people are concerned if they're not accustomed to that style is people are just not instant messaging fun stuff all day. Um, now, if you come and work with us, we send a lot of GIF images because I have a thing for them. I, I think they convey my yes. emotions frequently. <laughs> right? So there's a measure of playfulness that can happen in community, but it's, it's really about how quickly can we share 
information can we give and receive information. So having these um, collaborative tools to use helps us to start break down um, those silos, those barriers to communicate better, and also having some sort of a knowledge commons, whether it's a Slack or it's another sort of intranet tool where we're we have a place to collaborate on documents in real time and or have a repository stored um, so that people can gain access to information when they need it and not waiting for Joe, who happens to be on vacation for a week, or mm. I have to somehow put in a request with the finance department to understand what our policies are before I initiate this contract with a vendor, you know, those kinds of things. And, and we don't think about it because I think, Personal opinion, I think there's a lot of control that goes on, and that's predicated on fear, which we don't often realize, but I want to control mm -hmm. what goes on in my department and what we're doing because there's a fear if I release that or if I share that with somebody else, what's going to happen with it. Um, but when we see our picture, if, if you can go into a company and paint a picture for them that we're all interdependent on each other, this is a is a big ecosystem, and it doesn't matter the size of the company. We're all an ecosystem. Our clients are part of an ecosystem, our products and services, our vendors, our individual departments. Um, you know, we're all connected together. Mm. And when you can have people mm. see that bigger picture of interdependency and they see their, their value of contribution or their, their, um, what they're doing contributes to the big picture, why they're valuable to it, that fear of control starts to you know, release, and then they want to collaborate at a bigger scale. Um, I think one of the companies I've seen that does this very well is Slalom Consulting, um, and I've done a couple of case studies with them, and, and they've really been looking at, at doing a very, uh, they don't use the words open, but they're operating from an open organizational principle. Um, one of the things that they do is they allow people to kind of create their own career path. We're traditionally in a consulting world, um, you know, it, you have to progress up a ladder a certain way, right? So you have to be an associate for some certain number of years, and then you can be a senior associate for a certain number of years, et cetera. Where they're looking at, they want people to come in and solve the problems for their clients, not based on your tenure and your history with the company, but based on whether you can do a great job. Like, can you solve the problem for a client? That's all we're here to do. Mm -hmm. And so they allow the, for people to kind of say, I see something going on over here, and I'd really love to contribute to that. Can I get on board and do it? And so creating these environments where we can ultimately just solve the problems for our customers, which is really the point of our businesses. Um, yep. And so that, that, again, begins to break down these silos to where we have these cross-collaborations happening. We're doing, we're, again, goes back to solving problems faster and innovating at a higher rate, and which ultimately gives you that higher competitive advantage. Um, so there's a lot that comes out when you start breaking down silos that, that we see happening, but that's just a you know, quick example. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you, you mentioned a, a very interesting uh, tangential reverse diagnosis where you, where you kind of answered something that was swirling in the back of my head, which is <laughs> why do silos rise up? And there's this pattern, right? And, and you explained there's this desire for control, this, this kind of faux FAUX desire mm -hmm. for stability that informs this practice of building up a shell, building up a silo in order to maintain stability in my department so that I don't lose control and look bad. So it's this weird mix of control and pride and, 
and and ironically enough, that hurts the organization. This need to, to to restrain and restrict and make sure you have to go through red tape to get to me, and you know that 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 really hurts. I mean, can you comment a little bit on the the negative psychology that can happen in the leader's mind that helps create those silos that ultimately affect the company negatively? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think you know I have two opinions on that, and um, one of those are. I think people by nature, um, we all have a measure of fear. Yes. You know, it's it's funny because, you know, I, I think that somehow we've been led to believe that we're two different people. We're, we're a certain person in our professional environment, and we're a certain person in our personal environment. Mm. Well, we're the same person regardless. We express different characteristics depending on our environment, but we're always the same person. Mm. And at, at our human core, we're emotional people. You may not express things emotionally. Not everyone does it in the same way, but that's what makes us human is we have emotion. That's how we connect with other humans is through emotional details. And so or emotional feelings, not necessarily the detail. So that leader is going to have his own set of emotions, his own you know, set of baggage, if you will, from experience in life that is is pushing him one way or the other. So he expresses it, in, or he, she expresses it in different ways. Um, the other part of that is, is what's really interesting, when we started designing this, uh, our tool called the IRI, it's Initial Response Index, that I was talking about how we respond to change. When we started looking at some of the data, um, it became very clear to us <laughs> the responses that people have, right? So what we did is we're looking at like four dimensions that people respond to information. They respond to it on a detail level. They respond to it on that unknown, like what's the uncertainty of the unknown. Mm-hmm. They respond at an emotional level, and then they respond based on the risk. And within those dimensions, um, what we're finding is you might sit on one end of the spectrum differently from one level of dimension. So like for me, for instance, um, actually, I'm probably a terrible example because I'm like, I'm headstrong on all things moving. <laughs> like, I have a really high high index towards uh, uh, of hope, if you will. Like everything for me is about the vision of the future and the hope. Um, really strong from an innovation standpoint. But but some of the people we're seeing in data have like what would appear to be conflicting. Like they're really strong analyzers on details, but they're really strong on the other side of hope when it comes to emotion. So what a leader may may have, uh, if they're really stuck in the control and fear environment, um, if you will, when it comes to things like silos, um, it could just be for them, there's two pieces of that. It could be the emotion or it could be the risk. And for them, they need stability. For whatever their emotion is in the grieving process is they have to have stability versus being drawn to challenges. That would be the other side of that, that spectrum mm-hmm. would be drawn to the challenge. And so they may be somebody that we actually kind of call a maintainer. And while we tend to look at that negatively of somebody who says, well, this is my baby or this is my thing, right? Like I don't want to let go of our legacy that we built. But if we look at the positive spin and put, put, position them in a way where it's not a negative, put them in a position of, in a leadership role where they're a positive, where they're building stability and building our legacy because um, their focus is more about preservation. They don't want to let go of something. Yeah. But why don't they want to let go? Well, instead of we don't want to dig in their personal life of the why, but if we can 
position that in a good way, they ultimately benefit the health of the team and benefit the health of the organization. Um, there's a lot of value in people that want stability. Like for me, I need people on my team. Well, I'm not, I don't understand the way a maintainer thinks, for instance. I don't understand why you want to hold on to something that was. For me, mm-hmm. it doesn't compute in my hardwiring. But I know I need people on my team because I'm so strongly towards innovation and moving forward and pioneering new ways of doing things that I need somebody that understands risk and understands details and understands the um, the good stuff that we don't want to leave behind, right? You don't want to – what's that old term we've always heard? You don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Mm-hmm. So we need those people on our teams. We just have to help them understand and how to position their value in a, in a, in a way so we can eliminate silos but still leverage someone like that. That's great. Yeah, yeah. I mean, kind of, you know, at a meta level, it sounds like what you're saying is to make an open organization, you have to realize a few things. First, you will have to sacrifice a little bit of some of the old ways of thinking generally, but the benefits completely outweigh it. The productivity, profitability, engagement – the, the passion that your team is going to have if they embrace that is going to be so, so much greater than whatever pleasure you get out of doing things your way. And two, in order to get there, it's going to take a little bit of uh, humility, a little bit of, yeah, I can, I can change the way I think. And uh, can you comment on that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I thought that was beautifully said, first of all. Um, I, I, I do believe that organizations – that do not begin to embrace openness. Again, we're not talking about you have to completely run with like a meritocracy, governance, or whatever, but you have to start moving towards openness, collaborative, inclusive environments. If you don't, I don't believe that you're going to have a business in the next five to ten years. Um, And the reason I say that is because what we already see trend-wise moving to uh, the way we're going to do more um, collaborative roles, like freelancing people, I mean, this is just proven statistics that we've seen uh, mm. over the last decade, um, moving to more Internet of Things and automation and machine learning and AI, all the things that are coming about that are very disruptive, um, that we could look at as negatively disruptive. But if we get on board with that, with disrupting our people now so they're prepared to handle that disruption, then, yeah, you're going to stay in business. If not, you need to start thinking about, <laughs> about what you're going to do, because I think a lot of us are kind of behind the eight ball on that one. Um, but, you know, I, I think that the, the big takeaway for people is there are a lot of things we have been facing for decades. We've been facing a stagnant rate of engagement with employees, which costs us billions upon billions upon billions yep. of dollars a year. Um, we talk about high-stress high work levels that come out of that because when people are not happy and they're not being productive and fulfilled, it causes stress and health issues. Again, it's a separate cost line item to our businesses. Um, you know, another staggering factor um, that I think catches most people off guard is change initiatives, be it in a project or organizational change, has had a 70% failure rate since the 1970s. Wow. So for 40, 40 years, we've been throwing money away at failed change initiatives because of, of something's not working. And I don't always think it's the methodologies that's wrong. I mean, in some cases it might be, but I don't think it's the methodology that's wrong. I think it's we've never bothered to stop and think, how do we do it with people? 
What's the human mm-hmm. element here? I mean, to to the work with your movement, getting us to come back to the human element, the human connection, that is so important. And I think if we begin, that's the, the point of open openness or open organizations, if we get back to doing that, uh, putting the human element at the forefront of this, then we don't have anything to fear by technology changes. We don't have anything to fear about how we're going to solve problems in a marketplace. Um, and, and then again, that's going to go back to improving your bottom line. If you're, if you're a numbers person, it comes back to our bottom line. What's our ROI on this? Is, is implementing something like this a little tedious on the front end? Yeah, because you're right. We have to change the way we think. We have to let go of some things in order to make room for the new. Um, but ultimately, there is a greater return to your bottom line, um, to engagement, productivity, um, turn, you want to talk about high turnover? There's another big one to solve. Um, do you know in 2016, with millennial turnover alone, it cost over $30 billion to U.S. business just for turnover mm-hmm. cost. So we want to start addressing those things at the bottom line while also doing good things, uh, doing the right things by people. Um, this is this is one way to do it. I think it has a larger impact, a larger long-term uh, rate of return um, and sustainability. Ultimately, if we can if we can get there. Mm-hmm. Excellent, excellent. What would you say to the leader who is interested in making their company better and is looking for options? And they come across someone like yourself. They come across Leader Twenty One, and they and they say, "Listen, I'm under a lot of pressure. I have a lot of things on my plate." and we have some goals that we have to meet in a certain deadline. I don't know if I can just get outside of this this paradigm I'm in right now and and develop these relationships and develop these 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 people skills. That's just not who I am. I'm not that kind of person. I really just I, I, I'm not sure if this is worth investing in. What would you say to a leader who has that reservation? Oh my gosh, what a great question! And I'm, I'm sure we've all said that at some point in time when we're when we're busy and we're inundated, right? Like that's that. I just don't have time. So I think the first thing um, a leader needs to acknowledge is, hey, we're all busy. We all have our backs against the wall. People have been operating lean for a number of years, so we understand that that's that's where you're at. But we have to look at: are we going to drown where we're at, or are we going to make an effort to? Get in a lifeboat to change things. Um, it's, it's just, it's a phrase my dad's used with me for years whenever I was struggling with something. He's like, are you going to drown with this thing or are you going to kick yourself to the surface? These are your only options. And, but, it, but you still have a choice. What are you going to do? So I think acknowledging that that's where we're at and we have to make a choice. And then I think the next thing is you have mm-hmm. to find, uh, someone to partner with, collaborate with to help you do what you need to do. It may not be in your wheelhouse. And for a lot of people, it's not. And I think that that's fair to say. It doesn't make you any less of a leader. In fact, I think it's better if you can acknowledge it as a leader that this is not my wheelhouse, this is not my strength, but I need to partner with the right people to make it happen. Um, Mm -hmm. One of the things we're looking at doing is saying, you know, first of all, I think the old way of coaching and consulting is kind of dead. People are over it. It has a – but I think partnering and collaborating with people – um, just much like you and I are doing right now, these conversations that we've had in the past is saying, hey, we're, we're in alignment. We're passionate about the same things. How do we partner to do this together? And I think people are more receptive to building a better future together. And that's one of the approaches we're looking to take is let's, let's come in and sit with your people. Let's build something that works for you. Like leverage our strengths and then let's leverage your strengths and let's 
let's do this. You know, it doesn't have to be my way. We can, we can help advise you on a good way to do it. But, you know, again, if we're going to live by principles of being collaborative inclusive, that is one way for a leader to step out and say, I can't fully take this on or the people stuff's just not really my strength. Then collaborate with people that do have the strength and leverage the strength that your people have and put the two together and ultimately, you know, get what you need out of it provide something awesome for your organization and your people, and do it in faster time. You know, implementation is another scary word, I think. Coming from the consulting mm. world, you could say, oh, well, we're going to implement. And implementing organizational change might take years. It's going to take forever. Right. Well, no wonder it fails. I mean, business changes so rapidly. Three to six months, everything could be different. I mean, we all like to upgrade a phone every year. <laughs> you know, So we can't expect... Uh, to say, oh, we'll implement organizational culture change, and we've got 18 to 36 months to give that. Nobody has intention span for that, you know. It's mm-hmm. why we binge TV shows, you know, like I need a whole season at once. Um, and, that, and that's part of the culture and society we live in. So I think that changing our mindset even about how implementation works is really going to be crucial for an organization and ultimately for that leader's success is, you know, you're drowning right now. This has to happen now. You don't have, you know, two years to give a change. I mean, while change may take time to sink in and and really take a hold, but actually that implementation phase and that immersion, if you will, needs to happen very rapidly. Mm. Or or otherwise it's just not important. So if you're working with even vetting a company to work with and their plan is to take a few years to do it, I I think you're you're already just chalking up to failure rate right now. (laughs) It's just not going to work. It, it doesn't work right. for people anymore. Yeah, you're so right. I mean, what what what's the latest statistic on on how long people stay in a company? It's like like 21 months or something. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's just so short. And I may yeah. be off on that statistic, but I mean, yeah, it's very close. Time, yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, can you imagine like you know, hey, we're gonna do a three year change initiative. Like by then, like your your previous employee has gone to two other jobs mm-hmm. in the last three years already, and it's Absolutely. like you know. Um, it absolutely is true. Um, what would you say uh, are some of the main people and culture principles a leader or a leadership team has to start embracing now in order to be competitive as we get into 2018, as things start to change, as the freaking computers take over? Like, yeah. What are some right, of right. the the main principles regarding people and culture that leaders have to put at the front of the bus now? Yeah, I think the biggest one we've been hearing, um, so like I said, we've been doing a lot of work with Red Hat and listening to what their clients are saying, right? So mm. digital transformation is, is a term that I think is universally lo- known right now. It, it's a pain point. And you could say, well, we're not a technology company. And I would push back and say, everybody's a technology company. Now, we all <laughs> implement, whether we're building our own systems or we buy a system, we're operating on technology. We serve our clients, uh, we serve our people through technology tools. So um, understanding what that means um, is going to be critical, and it's going to be critical to understand how it affects your people. And that goes back to, I would say, the two most important factors as a leader is you've got to become more inclusive, understand inclusivity from a feedback standpoint from a knowledge sharing standpoint and from a um, 
different ways of thinking. So we have to become more inclusive in our thought. Uh, and then I think next to that would be how do we become more collaborative? So if you need to open your space up a little bit to become more collaborative in how you design your workplace, how you design your processes, how you design your project teams, think about it from inclusion and collaboration. While all of the factors are very important to make it work that we've mentioned today, I would say those have got to be at the high point because if not, if you can't get, you can't get outside of your head like, okay, so we talked about, you said before the computers take over, which is why I brought up digital transformation. So a lot of companies are faced with, yeah, it's going to save us money by automating this one process or implementing a little bit of AI changes the way we do talent acquisition, for example. Um, and that while that's very true, then we go, well, what about our people? What else did that touch? So you've got to get outside of your own head and think about my decision, what else is it touching in this ecosystem in our company um, or within the other departments, if you will. And then that goes back to that inclusion piece so that we know that we're making decisions that aren't going to negatively affect everyone. Um, or if I'm left with implementing an automation, what do I do with the rest of my people? And so I would, I would say that third piece is learn how to build. So that learning how to build would be, um, okay, we've implemented something. It's now affected my people. Are there new competencies we can train our folks on and utilize them elsewhere? Is there, is there a way that they can now serve the next iteration of service for our client versus saying we're implementing and automating something that has a negative workforce impact? So now I may need to eliminate 30 people in the department because I don't need them to do this process or this thing any longer. But the reality is you might have some really amazing talent that you don't want to lose, and your clients love them. So build them. Build build on that. Is it building a new product and service that they can then do, or is it providing them new competency training so that they can then um, continue to grow and scale your company and work with your existing client base who already loves them? So it's, it's getting out of these mindsets, I think. So being inclusive, being collaborative, and building, I think, are probably the three key things that will keep you in the game and will also propel you into growth in the future. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Excellent. Love it. Love it. Um, so let's, uh, let's wrap up by talking about your book and yeah. talking about what you are wanting to do um, coming up in, you know, the uh, next few months and, and into 2018. Man, um, the next few months are already kind of crazy. <laughs> um, yeah. One, one got to get the, the books, got to get the last bit put into it. But, um, you know, we've got a couple of things coming up uh, in October, actually, um, that we're, we're speaking with um, some folks out in Dallas through a co-branded event with Red Hat to a group of CIOs and CTOs on building agile people, which is pretty exciting. Um, mm. And then also speaking at the All Things Open conference in Raleigh, um, on October 23rd and 24th on building a collaborative and inclusive world. Pretty pretty excited about that one. That's a, a pretty significant technology conference um, that are, again, folks are starting to think outside of technology and talking about the people part of it. So how do we do this as people? Um, so really, really excited about that. And then speaking to the book, um, the idea I had on the book was really about this generation right now as all of us in the workplace together, regardless of our cohort group we identify with, um, that this is the generation, this is the time to bring openness to the world and start building very um, 
agile workplaces through agile people um, and, and how that will propel us into the future. And my belief behind that and, and what I push is not just the organizational culture work or the discussion or the language, but my belief is if we can infuse these principles into people in the workplace, which ultimately gives us a better workplace, we've already talked about that, but when people are spending that amount of time learning those principles, they go home and they start utilizing those principles in their relationships at home and then when they go serve their community. So for me, it's kind of like I laugh it off with my team all the time. They'll go, Jen, well, what's your, what's your purpose here? And I, and I joke and I say world domination. I, I, I literally, that's my word. But I'm like, it's about affecting a global change through human connection, but we're doing it through the workplace. Um, and so that's just kind of my why behind all of it. Um, and I'm really, really excited. One of the chapters on, on leadership is actually um, has a preview copy going to a class at Duke University in November, and they're going to, to read the chapter, and then I get to uh, Skype in with that class um, mid-November to talk through what open leadership looks like um, in these collaborative and inclusive environments that we're looking to build. So, um, yeah, that's just kind of what's, what's on deck in the next couple of months as we um, – as we prepare to kind of get our software built and developed, that's always on the side, moving forward all the time. But uh, the fun stuff is the speaking and engaging with people and kind of, um, you know, fostering these ideas that we can we can all come together and make this happen. It's not just about me. It's not just about my team um, or our company uh, or about any of that for any of us. It's about all of us collectively. Um, I'm going to go back to your, your human element piece. It goes back to this movement of we've got to start seeing people as people, removing labels. I always love to say labels are for things, not for people. Mm-hmm. We've got to remove our labels and start coming back to who are we as humans and connecting at an emotional level. I think that's why sharing stories are so important. It really helps us build and foster community. Um, we never have to come from the same perspective. We don't have to have the same details. Um, but we can connect on a human level of how we felt during those different sets of experiences, and that's where we can um, start forging pathways for these deeper conversations that we need to have. And it's not just about in the workplace. It's obviously something for us globally as a whole that we're, we're all craving to be heard and be seen right now. And, and that's a, one of the ways that we're trying to do it. It's a piece of the pie we're trying to do it through, but, um, you know, it's ultimately – it, it speaks to what you're doing as well, is how can we get more conversations started um, that allow us to have a more open discourse and see each other as humans. And um, it, it's widely needed, and it takes a lot of us to do it. So I appreciate that you let me share it here today. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, every day, and this is my biggest passion for for the work that we're doing, which is so, so similar. It's there are people mm-hmm. going into work going into their jobs, getting off for their lunch break and dreading their lunch break while they eat their sandwich. They hate the environment they're in. And so much of that environment could be changed if leaders just took a few small steps toward this type of work. So mm-hmm. small. doesn't even cost that much. All you have to do is just be willing to do it and look at what would happen to your team if you tried it. You know, I mean, that, that motivates me so much. Absolutely, absolutely. 100% agree with you on that. So give us 60 seconds of you. So 60 seconds to close it out of anything in particular that we may have missed that you would love for people to know about you or about your work. Three, 
two, one, go. Um, first, thanks for listening, and I appreciate your willingness to be part of it. Um, for me, again, I just want to go back to the fact that I am very passionate about people and that they learn to understand who they are. When they understand who they are, the value that they have to offer anything that they, that they contribute to, whether it's in their home life or it's out in the workplace or in their communities, um, you have value to add. You have a place at the table. Um, take the time to understand what those strengths are so that you can use it uh, for good instead of feeling stuck because you don't know what to do with it. And, um, and yeah, just, just use it in all facets of your life. And that's really what my goal is for any, any interaction or conversation that I have. So, um, you know, definitely connect with me on Twitter and, uh, uh, or, or through Jared somehow. It's just an amazing way to connect with people and further the conversation. Great. So we want to thank you, Jen, for being a part of our podcast and for being our very, very first podcast interviewee. What a treat. What a treat. Thank you. Appreciate it.